So we are in a series right now on John's Gospel, and currently we're in a little bit of a sub-series, <laughs> that's weird, um, of chapter 4 right here, this story of Jesus and the woman at the well. Last week I said we were going to do this in two parts, uh, but uh, psych, we're going to do it in three parts. So... Um, Today, what we're going to do is we're going to read John 4, 1 through 7. Uh, we've provided the entire text of this exchange for you in your liturgy this morning. Um, or if you're new with us, hey, we have several uh, Gospel of John uh, journals over here on our resource table. Feel free to hop up and grab one of those if you'd like one and follow along if you're a note taker. Um, and the text is in there as well. But I want to read 1 through 7 today. And then we're going to go from there. Let me read this to us. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And this is the word of the Lord. Uh, Lindsay and I, the other night, watched the movie Christopher Robin. Have any of you guys seen that movie? We had not seen it before. Uh, Christopher Robin, the, the boy from the Winnie the Pooh stories, um, is the main character in the movie. And uh, the basic premise of the movie, I'm going to spoil it a little bit for you this morning, because I know you guys are just itching to watch Christopher Robin. Um, but the basic premise of the movie is that the, the boy Christopher Robin grows up, right? And he leaves Winnie the Pooh and his imaginary friends behind, and he goes off to boarding school, he goes off to university, uh, he goes to war, uh, he comes back, he gets married, he becomes sort of a middle management wonk at a company, and uh, they have a child. He has a, a small daughter. And uh, yet, he is like hopelessly devoted to his work. He's a workaholic. He consistently chooses his job and the demands of his job over his family and over his daughter. And that's the main kind of source of drama in the movie. And about, I don't know, three quarters of the way through the movie, I kind of cynically uh, or sarcastically said to Lindsay, gee, I wonder how this is going to end. Because it was so obvious. It was like, you know, he's, Winnie the Pooh is going to have to come back, right? And, 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 and the other, like Tigger and Eeyore, they're going to have to come back and come back into his life and awaken him to uh, his inner child, right? And that he's abandoned his former childish ways and he's embraced this kind of gruff uh, adulthood where no one else matters in his family and they're going to wake him up to this and he's going to tell his boss and his job to shove it and, and everything's going to be good again. And I was like, that's how it's going to go. That's how it's going to end, because I've seen that movie before, and, and you've seen that movie before. It's a common trope 
in movies, especially kid movies, that you have this sort of stern, uh, workaholic adult, and they need a child or a childlike person to come into their life and awaken them to their state of being and kind of awaken their childlike attitude inside, and, and then everything is good. It's the premise of Mary Poppins. Uh, it's the premise of the movie Hook. It's the premise of Elf. Like all of these things uh, you see, and you can probably think of some others as well. It's a type, right? It's a typology. And it's kind of a blueprint or, or a, a framework for the story. And, and the Bible is also filled with typologies. It's filled with these little blueprints or frameworks for story. And whether you realize it or not, when we encounter Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, we are encountering what to Jews would have been a very well-known Old Testament typology. And it's what's known as a Hebrew betrothal typology. A Hebrew betrothal typology. Let me show you what I mean. Turn with me real quick. If you have your Bible in front of you, turn with me to Genesis 24. Genesis 24. This is in the story of Abraham, the patriarch. And at this point, Abraham is very old. Seems like Abraham's old throughout the whole story, right? But, but at this point, he's really old. And he's concerned that he's going to die. And his son, Isaac, who is unmarried is going to marry a Canaanite woman. And Abraham is not interested in that. Um, he wants Isaac to marry somebody from Abraham's own clan, Abraham's own tribe. And so here in Genesis 24, Abraham commissions one of his servants to go back to the place that God had originally called Abraham out of and to go back to Abraham's people and find a bride for Isaac. Look at verse 10 of Genesis 24. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water, at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. And before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. So he's traveled this great distance. He sits down beside a well and lo and behold, not only do women come to the well, right, but literally a relative of Abraham comes to the well, and it is Rebekah who will become the wife of Isaac. Genesis 29, the exact same thing happens again, except this time it's with Isaac. Isaac is now an old man, and he wants his son Jacob to, marry a Can to not marry a Canaanite woman. And so he sends Jacob back to the land of his forebears. 
and he sends him to go and find a wife. And so Jacob goes on this journey, and he sits down beside a well and meets Rachel, who would become his wife, along with her sister. It's a long story. Exodus 2, fast forward to the story of Moses. Moses has become a powerful official in the court of Pharaoh, but he's also become aware of his Hebrew heritage. And one day, as he's out among the Hebrew slaves, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and Moses kills him. And then in fear of his life, flees. And he runs away to the land of Midian. He leaves behind his position and his power. He goes to Midian. He sits down by a well. And here comes the daughters of Jethro to draw water. And Moses thus meets his future wife, Zipporah. It is this continual theme that pops up, particularly here in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And, and are you seeing the theme? Are you seeing what's going on here? I said these are scenes of betrothals, uh, which is a different thing from a wedding, right? Um, you might liken a betrothal to an engagement in today's world, but, but it isn't exactly the same thing. A betrothal in the ancient world carried more legal weight than a modern engagement does. If you break off an engagement today, uh, there may be emotional or relational consequences of that, but there aren't really like legal consequences because nothing has been formalized really in that way. The big difference between an engagement and a betrothal is that a betrothal almost always involved an exchange of money or an exchange of goods, or an exchange of services, sometimes between the man and the wife, or the potential wife, but often as well between the fathers of the bride and the groom. One father would effectively purchase the right for his son to marry another's daughter, and this would be formally and legally binding. And once the betrothal began, the two parties could not break out of it, and except to have a divorce. Once the betrothal had begun, for all intensive purposes, both parties were married, even though a wedding ceremony had not taken place yet. And this is why in that first story in, in Genesis 24, Abraham's servant took camels and he took choice gifts. These were used to purchase or to secure the betrothal. Sometimes it wouldn't be money that would change hands. Um, sometimes it would be labor, as was the case with Jacob. Um, sometimes it'd be like a promise of work for a certain number of years. Uh, the modern wedding ring, to some extent, stems from this practice because I think we think of it today as like a sign that's like this symbol that I'm engaged or that I'm married, but also recognize that it's an item of great value in many cases that the groom gives to the bride, that you're sort of securing the engagement. Um, and in many cases, right, you had to save your money for a long time, right? Or you put it on a credit card because you really couldn't afford to do it, right? Um, and, and so the same kind of thing is happening even in today's world, but we just don't think about it in the same way, and there certainly are not the legal ramifications that go along with it. In all of these biblical instances, you have a man, a well, and a woman. 
And notice also in all of these examples, the man comes to the well first and sits down, and then the woman arrives. It's just like an interesting pattern. Like each of these stories are very similar, including here in John 4. Let's look again at the text we read just a moment ago. Now, when Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, John there is John the Baptist, who we had just learned some about in the previous chapter, chapter 3. He left Judea, which is in the southern part of Israel, and made his way north for Galilee. But he had to go through the region of Samaria. Uh, Last week, we really dug into what Samaria was, who the Samaritans were. And so I would encourage you to go back and listen to that uh, if you have a chance, because it'll give you more insight into uh, really the relationship between Jews and Samaritans, which was contentious. So he comes to this town called uh, Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well at about the sixth hour. So that would have been something like noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now this is just a coincidence, right? I mean, no one had running water at this point. So if you wanted water, you had to go to the well. And this was true for every ancient community. It was the water cooler of its day. Life happened around the well. People drank around the well. Animals drank around the well. And uh, surprise, surprise, you meet women at the well. More than likely, culturally, women were the ones who were coming and drawing water for the family every day. But, but I mentioned just a minute ago that what took us from chapter 3 into chapter 4 was a story involving John the Baptist. And at the end of chapter 3, John the Baptist had learned that Jesus' ministry was blossoming. John's disciples are concerned even, potentially, because they're bleeding numbers. Like more people are going out to Jesus than are coming out to John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, who at one point had been this incredibly influential figure, drawing thousands upon thousands of people, suddenly his influence is waning, and his disciples are going, what do we do? And and what John says is, is so amazing. He says, no, 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 guys, you don't realize this is exactly what we want to have happen, right? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This, he, he like introduced Jesus to Israel. He said, this is him. And, and my job is to prepare the way for him. Guys, we want this to be happening. And he famously says, he must increase and I must decrease. But, but right before he says those words, he says something kind of strange if you look back in chapter 3. And, and, and suddenly what he says makes sense when we consider this typology. This is 329, verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, John says. The friend of the bridegroom, like the best man, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So John's responding to his disciples with this sort of strange analogy about marriage, he says, the friend of the bridegroom rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice, therefore this joy of mine is now complete. John says, I'm like the best man watching with joy the bridegroom becoming united to his bride. 
This is not just a statement of humility, this whole he must increase and I must decrease thing. He's also noting a present reality. The bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is in real time becoming united to his bride. So he says these words and then cut to Jesus sitting down at a well. And oh, here comes a woman. Chills, right? And here's what's so fascinating about this to me. It isn't just this one woman, right? It's not just this woman. Jesus isn't only being united to her, but also many from her town. If you read through the entire encounter, she goes and she tells her town about Jesus, and they start coming out to him as well, and they believe as well. And in reality, this is just the beginning of all of those to whom Christ will be united, including many of us 2,000 years later who have committed our lives to Christ. It's incredible. Verse 39 in chapter 4 says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. This is the first mass conversion scene that we find in John's gospel. We've seen Jesus call his disciples, right? They've confessed him uh, as Lord. We know from the beginning of this chapter that many people were coming out to Jesus and were being baptized by Jesus' disciples. And we learned uh, also back in chapter 2 that after Jesus cleared the temple in Jerusalem that many people believed. But this is the first like group that we see, at least here in John, that we see following Christ and confessing their belief in Christ. And here's why this is so significant to me. They aren't Jews. They aren't Jews. John has been clear from chapter 1, from the very beginning, that Jesus came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. And then the first mass conversion we find here in John is a group of people who the Jews completely looked down on as almost being subhuman. They looked down on them so much that they didn't even treat them as slaves and servants. They acted as if they didn't even exist. In chapter 3, immediately before this, Jesus had spoken with a Jew. He had spoken with Nicodemus. Seemingly a powerful ruler, ruler among the Pharisaic, Pharisaic, goodness, Pharisaical sect within Judaism. Jesus had talked to him. Jesus said, I am the doorway to new life. I am the doorway to rebirth. But to our knowledge, Nicodemus didn't run off and tell everybody, hey, I've, I've come across this guy. Could this be the Christ? But this woman, a Samaritan, does exactly that, and the response is tremendous. Abraham and Isaac, who we looked at a moment ago in Genesis, they were very concerned that their children marry their own people and not intermarry with the Canaanites. And yet here, Jesus is becoming united with such a people. Last week, we talked about the history of these folks, and part of their historical narrative was that at one point in time, they had been Hebrews. But after the northern kingdom of Israel had been carried away by the Assyrians into exile, 
and the, and the Assyrians had repopulated the area with other people from other tribes, the remaining Hebrews had intermarried effectively over several hundred years, creating this new ethnic group called Samaritans. So the Jews thought of them as inbred people, right? They weren't pure. Their lineage was not pure. And yet Jesus comes to this town of impure, inbred people, and they come out to him in droves. It just reminds me of what John told us in the last chapter. For God so loved the world. You remember the Greek word that he used there for world is the word cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S, cosmos, which doesn't just mean earth. It doesn't just mean the inhabitants of the earth. It doesn't mean like the galaxy. Cosmos in the Greek means the whole of ordered creation or the whole of structured creation. When, when John says that God loves the world, he means God loves all that he has created. He loves all that he's created. Has he historically called the Jews to be his people? Yes, but that doesn't mean he only loves them. In fact, Jesus suggests in the Sermon on the Mount that God's love and God's care extends even to birds and flowers. Ordered creation. Because in the beginning, God took creation from being formless and void, in other words, from being chaos to being cosmos, formless and void to ordered and structured. Several years ago, I was serving a church in Dallas, and it, the church had a thriving marriage ministry, and part of the reason why um, the marriage ministry was so good was because the couple that read, led it were kind of, kind of charismatic in their personality, but they also had this incredible story of having gotten divorced and then years later remarried. And which is amazing in and of itself, but it was sort of this like against all odds kind of story. They had gotten divorced. Each had been remarried. If I'm remembering correctly, they had moved to like separate parts of the country. They were married to other people for decades. And then I believe both of their spouses died. And then through this kind of crazy string of events, they ran into each other like in an airport and got reconnected and eventually were remarried. And so it was just this amazing story. But to hear them tell it, it was a story of God's faithfulness in spite of their own sin. It was a story of God's faithfulness in spite of bad decisions. God was pursuing them while they were pursuing other things, pursuing selfish ends. And God brought healing into their lives and re reunited them back together. And guys, that's exactly what he is doing for us through Christ. If you go back to the beginning of the cosmos, God and man were united like there was nothing to separate them until sin entered into the picture. And what followed was not like a divorce, but more of an estrangement. But the reality was that only one party really left that union, right? God didn't walk away from us. We walked away from him. And the story of the Old Testament, which leads us ultimately to Christ, is of a God who is relentlessly pursuing his wayward spouse, who is so hopelessly lost in her sin, or, or a father seeking a, a prodigal son. The prophet Isaiah tells the people in Isaiah 54, 5, 
for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Man, it's such a rich verse. Your maker is your husband. And when you pursue things other than him, you are committing adultery. This is personified in the Old Testament story of Hosea. It's a story uh, we studied last year when we were studying the minor prophets. Hosea, who was called by God to marry a promiscuous woman named Gomer, who he subsequently had to go rescue from a voluntary life of prostitution. Even though she was married to him, even though they had children together, she had left the marriage and stepped into this life of prostitution. And how, pray tell, did Hosea rescue her? He bought her. He bought her back. Literally, Hosea paid the men who owned his wife in silver and grain to get her back. She had effectively become a slave. But just so we're clear, she had become a slave voluntarily. Like she had stepped into this life. As far as we know, she hadn't been kidnapped or coerced or anything like that. She had given herself over to slavery. She had chosen that instead of her spouse and her family. And it had gotten to the point where even if she had wanted out, she couldn't have made it happen. So her husband... Her husband had to step in and pay the price in order to rescue her from that which enslaved her. Does that sound familiar to anybody? This is the gospel we're talking about here. And gospel-centric marriage metaphors abound in the Bible. Scholar Andreas Kostenberger sees... John the Baptist as being like this bridge between the Old Testament prophetic era and the new covenant of Christ. John the Baptist is like the best man who has cleared the way. He, he's made the way for the betrothal to take place. And now he gets to sit back with joy and watch it all come together. But... Our betrothal to Christ is not without issues. And Paul saw this clearly as he was making disciples and planting churches. In 2 Corinthians 11, he tells the church in Corinth, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul says, I feel like the father of the bride at this betrothal between you and Christ, and I want to present my daughter, this church that I've helped to start and to nurture, I want to present this church as my daughter, as like a pure vessel to Christ, but I'm also worried that even though you might go through with the betrothal and give the appearance of being united to Christ, that you're really going to be lured away by other suitors, by other gospels. By other gods, I'm worried that you won't remain faithful. And friends, 
Isn't that our challenge in our fight? Isn't that the thing we battle on a daily basis? Through Christ, a way has been made for us to step into this union, a union that we don't belong in, a union that we don't deserve with a spouse we definitely don't deserve, this betrothal, and many of us have committed ourselves to Christ. We've committed ourselves to Jesus, but it doesn't mean that there aren't other lovers vying for our eye, vying for our attention. This is true in earthly marriage, isn't it? Some people think when I get married, sexual temptation is going to be a thing of the past. Come on. Some people think, man, when I get married, or, or maybe when I have kids, some of the selfishness that has characterized my life is going to be a thing of the past. Please. Come on. Some people think when I get married that all of my deepest and most pent-up longings and desires are finally going to be satisfied. Give me a break. Know those of you who are married know that marriage does not end our sinful nature. Marriage does not end our propensity to be drawn towards sin. If anything, maybe we discover new pathways of sin that were non-issues in the past, but that become points of contention in our lives. And this is true in the spiritual life as well, which is what Paul's alluding to with the church in Corinth. And God cares not just about your eternity, but also your life right now. And the difference between earthly marriage and this heavenly marriage is that in the heavenly marriage, your spouse can truly meet all your needs. He can be everything that you hope he can be. He is perfectly faithful, true, and good. He can fully satisfy. He can guarantee complete fidelity. Which, by the way, it's no coincidence to me that the woman that Jesus meets at the well has been married five times. Even though we don't know how those marriages ended, it's clear that this woman has been looking for something in marriage that has not been satisfied. Jesus says, I will give you living water and you will never thirst again. I will become your husband. And if you commit yourself to me, you will never be divorced or remarried again because you will truly be satisfied. So let's tease out this metaphor all the way as I close. Jesus here is seen... Here in John 4, he's seen in the early stages of becoming betrothed to his bride, the church. Not just this woman, not just this town, but all those who will call on the name of Christ. Whoever believes in him. And that includes those of us today who are committed to Jesus. That betrothal was bought and paid for at the cross. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. In other words, 
You are betrothed to Christ. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You're, you're now in this union, this binding union with Jesus. And even though the wedding has not been fully consummated, you belong to him because he's bought you with his body and his blood. So, so you can't go and attach your body to someone or something else because you've already committed it. And to do so would be dishonoring to the creator of the universe, the creator of the cosmos, who so loved the world that he sent his only son, so that you could be in this union. It's no different from saying that your marriage commits you in this way to your spouse. That, that, that I'm not just like theoretically committed to my spouse, but that in the marriage covenant, literally my body is committed to my spouse. And, and, and biblically, this idea that we become one flesh. If you're married, you and your body belong to no one else except you and your spouse. To give your body to anyone else would be dishonoring to your spouse and to you. So church, we are in this betrothal period where the commitment has been made, the price has been paid, and we're waiting for our groom to return so that the marriage can be consummated. And the New Testament promises us that he will return and he will take his bride, he will take what is his, and that we will come together fully in marriage and we will dwell in his home forever. You see, in, in Jewish betrothals, the real change that the marriage ceremony brought was this woman now comes to live in my home. We were already committed to each other, and to break that off would have been to have to go through a divorce. But until we have gone through the final consummation of the marriage, she doesn't live with me. She still lives with her family. But now she comes and resides with me. Church, Jesus is returning to take his bride home forever. So what do we do in the interim? What does it look like for us to be betrothed to Christ? That's where we're headed next week in part three of our study of the woman at the well. But in short, two things. Scripture says we, we need to be getting ready for the return of our groom and then scripture also says that he is preparing us for the wedding as well. Let me leave you with this passage to consider. This is Paul in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Just listen to this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. May God bless the hearing and reading of his word. Amen. Stand with us.